Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I, I got in trouble all, all my whole life. I still guess, I guess I still get in trouble my whole life. It's not like it's ever stopped. The man you heard at the beginning was Mr. James Fry, and when I understood that I could get the chance to interview him, I was excited, as he once changed my life. But before I get into that, let me tell you about the show's sponsor. For all you listeners around the globe, I'd like to inform you that you as well can dress in Swedish melancholy. Stutterheim Raincoats is a small company based in Stockholm, Sweden, and all their coats are hand-sewn, and fantastic both to wear and look at. You'll find Stutterheim in Barnes in the US or Dover Street Market in London, for instance, and in about 350 other locations spread over the globe or online at stutterheim.com. And shipping is free worldwide. That's S-T-U-T-T-E-R-H-E-I-M.com. Thanks for sponsoring us, Stutterheim. So, welcome to Varvet International Episode 3. My name is Christopher Triumph and it's time to talk about Mr. James Fry. He's an American author, born in 1969, and his book A Million Little Pieces once played a big part in, well, perhaps not saving my life, but changing it in a major way. And I think I'm safe to say that I wouldn't sit here uh, if it wasn't for that book. But the reactions I got when I talked to others about him before this interview, especially with Americans, would really surprise me. I mean, I knew he was controversial after that book about his years of drug addiction became Opera's Book of the Month, and he got to be her guest, and the book sold millions of copies, and then it turned out that some of it was fiction, and she got mad, and then he got to come back to opera for apologies, and there was drama and yelling, it blew up, you can see those clips online. This was almost 10 years ago, and it still seems to be a big deal when people think about James Fry. Even though controversy seems to follow him, he doesn't seem to be complaining about it, uh, and he seems to almost enjoy it, never backing down from a difficult subject, be it addiction or a book on Jesus in the 21st century. We met up in his Connecticut office where he and a small group of writers are working on a massive young adult series, which even before the first book, Endgame, is published, seems to be hyped to say the least. Now, let's roll the tape, shall we? So, Mr. Fry, is it okay if I call you James? I'm not sure about the etiquette. Yeah, sure. You can call me whatever you want. 
Okay. I get called a lot of stuff. I'll go for James then. Is that nicotine? It is. Okay. It's nicotine gum. You want some? No, no I'm good. I, I, I'm doing this thing instead. Chewing tobacco? Well, it's the same. Basically the same. And instead of a, a traditional sound check, I would like you to describe the setting for us, if that's okay. That's my office. It's a nice big office. The walls are gray. The couch, the large couch is black. Wall, it's from Ikea, by the way. It is from Ikea. All the furniture in my office, except for this desk we're sitting at, is from Ikea. And perhaps the chair. And the chair that I'm sitting in, yeah. There's two pictures on the wall. One is of a pit bull running in a circle, which sort of, I, I jokingly say, is, is a portrait of what my life is. And the other is of a skull with a rose that says, I must have had a pretty good time to end up here. There's also a picture that you haven't really put up yet, but... That stays behind the door. Yeah? Yeah. Why does it? Because I don't feel like putting it up. I had it. I used to have an office in New York City, and it was on the wall there, and I just haven't put it up here. It's a self-portrait. Well, it's a montage, I guess. It's a picture that New York Magazine made of me, and my wife thought it was funny, so she contacted them and had them send her the files, and she had it made into a print. It's of me standing in front of a bunch of factory workers. Yeah. Because the idea of this company that I have is a controversial idea in America that I'm running a writing factory. And so they made that picture to sort of make fun of me. And I don't mind being made fun of. Why is that controversial? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, basically what I did is I went to art school and I know a bit about art and I'm involved in the art world. And I applied the old-fashioned studio idea to the production of stories, you know, instead of running a studio where we made paintings or sculptures, we run a studio where we make books. You are the Andy Warhol of... Yeah, basically. Yeah. The, the idea is the same. It's what Warhol did. It's what Murakami and Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst do. It's what Michelangelo and Da Vinci did. It's literally this, the, the same system applied into the production of books and video games and movies and TV shows. But I still can't understand why why would anybody be offended by that or why is it controversial? You know, because I'm systematizing literature or you know, mostly it's controversial because it's me. You know, if yeah. somebody else was doing it, it would be, Oh, how how lovely and wonderful that this person is giving young writers an opportunity to work and get paid. But if it's me, it's you know, Oh, shit, the devil's back at work. Mm. Maybe we'll come back to the controversy part of you, but we're in Connecticut now? We are in Connecticut. And you moved to Connecticut from New York City. Yeah. Why? I had just had enough in New York. I love New York. I love big cities, but I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to see the stars at night, and I wanted to be able to take a deep breath. And I wanted to be able to walk around in a yard. And I wanted some peace and quiet and solitude and simplicity. I was just done with New York, you know. I was ready to go and ready for a simpler, quieter life, you know. I, I, live, I live in a house and 
there are woods around us, and we have a, a lake in the backyard and a long driveway, and it's simple and quiet. Does it have to do with privacy as well? Maybe, but mostly I, I literally, I just was tired of living in a city. I was tired of, I've lived in cities my whole life. I, I just wanted a simpler life. It had to do with like, I used to joke when I was a kid that someday I wanted to live in a castle in France with a moat and a wall. And I wanted to be left alone. And and that was when I was like, you know, 12, 14, 16. And I've kind of always said that, that my dream would be to live in a castle in France with a moat and a wall. And that the only... What's the, a moat? A moat. Yeah. You know, the castles that have big, deep sort of streams around them yeah, with yeah. a drawbridge? Yeah. That's a moat. Okay. Vallgrav, as we say in Swedish. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you say in Swedish. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I want to live in a castle with a moat. And, and we don't really have castles in America. And we don't have moats in America. So I did the next best thing, which is a house with a long driveway and a gate at the end of it. But it's still not in France, though. No, you know, I'm okay. I go to France enough. I go to Europe enough. I'm American. You know, I'm cool living here. Yeah? Yeah. Have you been considering moving overseas? Yeah, I've lived overseas a bunch of, a number of times in my life. I lived in Brazil as a kid. I lived in Paris and London. I lived in the south of France in a town called Beaulieu-sur-Mer. My parents lived in Japan. I've lived a bunch overseas. Okay. I think at some point I'll move back overseas. I don't know when or for how long, but I love Europe. Why? I I first loved it because all my heroes were either from there or or had become what they were there. You know, when I was 21, I read Tropic of Cancer, and that's what made me want to be a writer as I read that book. And I couldn't believe it existed. I couldn't believe somebody had written it. And I couldn't believe somebody said what Henry Miller said in it. And I couldn't believe somebody lived the way he lived and believed what he believed. And I read that book and I, I just said, I want to do that. I want to make some punk kid somewhere feel what Henry Miller just made me feel. And so six months later, I moved to Paris, you know, by myself. I didn't speak French. I didn't have a job. I, I didn't have much money. I just went for the adventure of it. That was in 1992. And I loved it. I had been to Europe a bunch of times as a kid with my family. I'd been to England and Italy and France and Holland. And for, for vacation or didn't your parents work? My parent, my dad's job, he was over there a lot. Okay. What um, did he do? He worked for a big dishwasher company in America called Whirlpool. Okay, yeah. And We have that in Sweden as well. Um, Most of it is branded IKEA, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything's branded IKEA in Sweden. Yes. Um, <laughs> so he did a bunch of work for Whirlpool all over Europe, and then in South America, and then in Asia. So you know, as a kid, you kind of go where your parents are. And and as a kid, they they very much they thought it was important for me and my brother to see the world, to see as much of the world as we could, to know that there were things outside of the United States. I don't know. I think you can go to Europe and in many ways it's a simpler life than what we have here. It's a more common sense based life than some of the life that exists in the United States. I like change. I like seeing new things and going new places. I get restless. 
You just said that you don't speak about family, but I mean, you have a family. It's going to be rather complicated, I guess, to move with children in school and such. Yeah, but I think those complications are good for kids. I think it's good for kids to to see the world, to know that there's something beyond whatever their their little bubble is. I mean, in Europe, you have cultures that exist. So do we in America, but it's a little different. You know, like Sweden is radically different than say spain even though they're relatively close to each other or even sweden's radically different from germany and they're much closer in america we're all american and it's good for for kids to see the world are you sort of drawn to the fact that we're a little bit more socialist over there no Socialism is not something I think about much. No, okay. I mean, I I stay out of politics for the most part, or whatever I think I keep to myself. It's not about socialism. I mean, I think it's good for to understand it. I think it works there. I don't think it could ever work here. Maybe we should start to talk about your book, Endgame. This book, I can't talk that much about it, but yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, it's rather a lot of hype around it already, and it's coming out in like six months. Comes out in October, yeah, five months. But it's it's done, it's printed, and although it's not with the correct cover, etc., but why such a long time to get it out? It's been done for a year and a half. It's been done for a while. Because it's, you know, we're trying to, or I'm trying to do more than just write a book. It's, it's, a, it's a more more vast idea. You know, it's a book. It's a video game. It's uh, multiple avenues of social media. It's a puzzle. There's a prize. Hopefully it becomes a series of movies and a series of television shows. I mean, the idea of Endgame was to create the first 21st century entertainment literary franchise even though i don't necessarily like the word franchise the idea was to build a story that existed across multiple platforms simultaneously and could be enjoyed by readers and gamers and across multiple platforms simultaneously so you know the book and and the video game are coming out more or less simultaneous to each other the idea was how do we bring a book into the world Usually a book is something that you just read and you enjoy it in a solitary way. How can we change the idea of what a book is and how, how a book interacts with the world? And we live in, in a world today with relatively advanced technology, with things like social media and the internet and mobile phones and iPads. And I look at all of those things and I see just different places to tell stories you know you can tell a story on twitter you can tell a story on facebook you can tell a story on google plus you can tell a story on youtube how do we use all of those things and integrate them into a book that's the idea of it so the book spills into other media of course but is it the other way around as well does other media spill into the book yeah yeah they're i mean they're interlocked they're inextricably tied to each other So you'll be reading the book, and if it's a digital book, there'll be words that are hyperlinked. You can click on those links, and it'll take you out. It'll take you to YouTube or a Google search result or a Google map result or a Google image or a website 
a social media platform, a Google Plus profile or a, a Twitter profile. And the things you see on those places are tied back to the book. They could lead you back to the book. You know, the Endgame was inspired by this book that I read when I was 10 years old. I lived in Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, USA, which is a sort of old, ratty industrial city in the middle of the United States. When I was 10 years old, I read this book called Masquerade. Masquerade was written by this English dude named Kip Williams, and it was a really simple book. It was... 16 pages of text and 16 pages of pictures. He was a painter, so he painted these, you know, really beautiful sort of intricate pictures. And it told the story of a hare who was taking a present from the moon to the sun. And the present was a solid gold jewel-encrusted rabbit. And he loses it somewhere along the way. Written into the book were clues, and into the pictures in the book were clues. And those clues led to the location somewhere on Earth where Kip Williams had buried a real solid gold jewel-encrusted rabbit. Oh, wow. And so if you could figure out the clues in the book and figure out where this rabbit was buried, you got to find it and keep it. So as a 10-year-old boy, it was worth, you know, the, the rabbit was worth 40,000 bucks back in 1980. And as a 10-year-old boy, I, I, I was fascinated by it and thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I wanted to solve it. And I read the book over and over and over again. And I couldn't ever solve it. I didn't ever even come close. But I, I Did someone? Yeah, it took three years for somebody to find it. That's fantastic. I haven't heard about that. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, a, a sensation back then. I mean, sensations were a different thing in the old world than they are in the new world. But it was cool. And I always thought about it. And I always wanted to figure out how to do it and do my own version of it. And that's what Endgame is. To a, Endgame is a book that has a puzzle written into it. And if you can solve the puzzle, it will lead you to the location of a key. And if you can find that key, it opens a case filled with a significant amount of gold. That's super cool. Yeah. Could you tell me where the key is? <laughs> I don't know where the key is. Okay. I hired other people to do the puzzle. I'm not smart enough to do the puzzle. Oh, cool. But the idea was to tell the story and build the puzzle using all sorts of media. You know, put it in a book, but have it lead out into other parts of the world, into social media, into YouTube, into search results, map results, images, to make this book that not only took you somewhere, but forced you to go other places. You know, if you want to try to solve this puzzle, you're not going to be able to do it sitting by yourself in a room. With a book. So it's not for poor kids then? No, it, 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 one of the requirements that we had when we were building the puzzle was a kid in India who got the book from a library had to be able to solve it. Okay. Socioeconomic class, is, 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 it plays absolutely no part in it. Okay. That was our standard, was a kid in India who lives in the ghetto, who gets the book from a library, has to be able to try to solve it. So it's sort of a Willy Wonka twist on it. Yeah, it's a little bit of a Willy Wonka. It's a little bit of Willy Wonka's cool, man. I wish Willy Wonka existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you wrote this with Nils Johnson Shelton. Yep. We just uh, ruled out that he, he's not a Swede or a Danish, although his he's, name san- sounds really... He's from New York City. He's from yeah. Soho, New York City, and lives in Brooklyn now. Okay. But he works here. 
with you? He doesn't work here. He works in Brooklyn. Okay. I mean, he comes up here a fair amount. I see him a fair amount. He's just an old buddy of mine. He's done other. We've worked on other stuff together. And the way we wrote the book is I, I came up with the idea of it, and I wrote the initial outlines of it, and then he wrote the first draft, and then I did all the subsequent drafts of it. And then we sort of go back and forth when we do work on it. You know, Sometimes he does it, sometimes I do it. It's a pretty vast undertaking, and I couldn't write the book and do everything else related to it by myself. No. But will the protagonists, will they like have Twitter accounts as well? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they've had Twitter accounts for nine months. Okay. They've had Twitter and Google Plus accounts and Instagram accounts. All the characters in the book have social media profiles. Okay, cool. Do you have people who are going to work with that over time? I have people whose jobs are to write those accounts okay cool update and manage those all those accounts so they're in character sort of yeah i mean finding that person to do that job was kind of a weird thing because that job doesn't really exist anywhere else like how do you hire somebody to write and manage all the social media accounts of characters in a book that hasn't come out and we started in october so we wanted to have a year of social media before the book came out It's kind of a weird job, and you don't really know how, how do you find that person. Mm. It's not like you can go somewhere and get that person. So we just put out a very sort of cryptic job advertisement. I don't remember specifically what it said, but it said something like, you know, social media director needed to manage 60 social media accounts. And then we got in a ton of resumes. And when I hire people to work here, I don't, I don't, look for traditional experiences you know it's like i'll see some a resume and i'll see something and i'll say they know how to do that so i can teach them how to do what i need to do mm. so we got this resume of this guy who said he had been a dungeons and dragons dungeon master and i was like that's essentially what i need somebody to do you yeah. know dungeons and dragons dungeon masters create stories for multiple characters over long periods of time yeah right yeah and he lived in kentucky which is a long way from here and so i just called him up and on the job ad it didn't say who the job was for it didn't say the job was for me or for my company and i just called him up and i, I was like hey you want to come to connecticut and meet me and see if you can do this job And we flew him out here, and we told him what the job was, and we gave him a copy of the book. And I said, go back to your hotel and read it. Come back tomorrow. Tell me what you would do. And he came back, and he had already done, like, crazy social media plans for a bunch of the characters. And I was like, all right, dude, let's go. We moved him out here, and he's been here since November. Fantastic. Look forward to reading it. <laughs> Good. I hope you dig it. Yeah. With Värvet and Varvet International, I love going back all the way, sort of. So can you tell me what you know about your birth? About my birth? I was born at University Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, I think at like 9.30 in the morning in 1969. 
did they anticipate you, your parents? Is that a word? You mean, were they trying to have me? Yeah, were you welcome into the world, sort of? Yeah, I had an older brother, and my parents wanted another kid, and I think they were trying to have a child. I don't think they anticipated getting what they got, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Was there disappointment? I don't think, you know... There's probably been disappointment along the way sometimes. It certainly has been interesting for them. But no, I think they were trying to have a kid. What kind of place was Cleveland back then in the 70s? You know, it was a, a, a steel town. In Detroit, they make all the cars. And in Cleveland, they make all the steel for the cars. And so they would they make all the steel and they would put it on boats and take it across the Great Lakes from Cleveland to Detroit where they would turn it into cars. You know, it was a dirty, polluted, blue-collar steel town. People make fun of Cleveland a lot. They call it the mistake on the lake because it is this sort of old industrial town. That in the early 70s, there's a river that flows right through the center of the city and the river caught on fire. And the reason the river caught on fire is there was so much pollution in the river that it ignited. Okay. And literally the river was burning. Oh, wow. It's a pretty poor town. It's a pretty violent town. It's a blue-collar town. It's Me and my friends sort of joke, and, and they, we, we say, yeah, Cleveland's a shithole, but it's our shithole, and we're proud to be from there. But Detroit is like, well, it's a deserted town now in, in ways. Is it the same with Cleveland then? Yeah, it's it's going through tough times. I mean, it's I don't think it's as in bad a shape as Detroit. It was never as big as Detroit, but it's definitely a, a city that's seen a lot of hard times and is seeing some now. Are your parents still alive? Yeah, my parents are alive. They don't live there anymore. They live somewhere else. But I go back to Cleveland once or twice a year with my childhood friends. Okay, but you moved around a lot. Yeah, my dad's job moved us around a lot. Yeah. Uh huh. So how was your upbringing? I mean, my upbringing was cool. My parents were great. My parents loved me and did the best they could with me, and I, I never went hungry, and I never didn't have any, you know, my dad was a lawyer. I think I was very lucky. I went to I went to decent schools my whole life, and my parents, I think, did as good a job as they could. I was a pretty difficult kid. I wouldn't want to be my parent, that's okay. for sure. In what way were you a difficult kid? I mean, I always liked bad guys, and I always kind of wanted to be a bad guy. Like, when you're a little boy, you, if, if you're watching a movie, you can either like the good guy or the bad guy. So I would always root for Lex Luthor instead of Superman. I would always root for the Joker instead of Batman, and I always would rather be the Joker than be Batman. And I got in trouble. I had drug problems and alcohol problems. and Did that start early on? Yeah, that started pretty early. I started drinking when I was 12, and... Smoking cigarettes when I was 13 or 14, smoking weed when I was 13 or 14. Do you have any idea how why you liked the bad guys? Uh-uh. Like, I always liked, you know, Dirty Harry, those Clint Eastwood movies. I always liked Dirty Harry. The Outlaw Josie Wales. Yeah. Hell's Angels. It sounds like you're a middle-class guy or a boy. How did you find the bad guys to hang out with? You know, it wasn't like there was a bunch of bad guys in my town, so I, I was kind of the bad guy. I was the one who got in trouble and who convinced other kids to get in trouble with me. There's always that kid in every town who raises hell. 
you were the worst kid in Cleveland. Not in Cleveland. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of people who raise hell in Cleveland. Yeah, um, there's competition. There's plenty of competition there. I didn't ever do well in school. I didn't get good grades. I wasn't like a, a, a kid anybody expected much from when I grew up. I just did what I wanted to do, which was like get drunk and raise hell. Was it like that all the time? Yeah. I mean, I was. I, I got in trouble all my whole life. I still guess. I guess I still get in trouble my whole life. It's not like it's ever stopped. I mean, I, I don't. It's a different kind of trouble. It's certainly, I guess, more sophisticated, weirder kind of trouble. But it's not like I've ever been anybody's golden boy. And I don't really ever want to or care. Like, I just, my whole life, I've just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, I deal with it. And and that's just how I am or how I think. Like, I don't seek out trouble anymore, for sure. I just do what I want. When did you start writing? I started trying to be a writer when I was like 21, after I read Tropic of Cancer. I mean, I thought I could go to Paris and write a book, and and I couldn't. My first book got published when I was 33, so it, it took 12 years to get a book published. It was written in 2000 and 2001, and it came out in 2003. So you wrote a bunch of other stuff before that? I mean, I tried to. I mean, I remember I would sit in Paris with notebooks... I still have the notebooks and I would write shit and I and I would think it was like brilliant stuff like I thought I was some kind of genius and I was reading a ton of books I was reading everything I could get my hands on but I loved Henry Miller and Baudelaire and Rimbaud and I loved Herman Hesse and I would sit and write in these notebooks and think that I was like writing the most profound stuff and And it was all nonsense, you know, it was all young, crazy, stupid shit. Were you pretentious? I mean, I think I was probably pretentious in some ways. It, w it wasn't like a sophisticated pretension. I mean, I would get drunk every day and I, I would talk about books and I would write, I would look at art and I, I would think I was doing really profound things. But it's hard to be pretentious when you've got like food stains on your shirt or when you're, you're throwing up. Yeah. every day you know it was it was trying to live what i imagined was like a it sounds ridiculous an outlaw literary life as a 21 year old nothing came of it the first real book i tried to write was maybe three years later when i was 24 i was living in chicago i'd come back to the u.s and i'd gone to rehab and i'd cleaned up and i tried to write this book and i got like 30 pages in maybe i still have that too it's but I just didn't have the discipline to finish. And it took a long time to learn it. It took a learn, long time to learn to write. It took a long time to learn to write consistently. It took a long, long time to learn the discipline of writing. It took a long time to learn to have faith and confidence. Those are the real things about being a writer. It's, I knew lots of people who, were, who wanted to be writers back then, And, and almost all of them were smarter than me and almost all of them were better educated than me. And the reason I was able to do it and almost none of them were was I figured out how to sit in a room by myself in front of a computer for hours and hours, day after day after day after day after day and never lose confidence and never lose faith. I always believed that 
if I sat there long enough and I worked hard enough, I would learn to do what I wanted to do. You said that you figured it out. How did you do it? Just by sitting there day after day after day okay. after day. So that's the trick, basically. I mean, for me it was. I think every everybody's different. I mean, I think there are some people who are able to write books more easily than it, I was able to, but there are other people who aren't. For me, it was having to learn to sit there and, and learning how to write. I wanted to write in very specific ways. I had this whole idea that... I didn't want to write books that read like other people's books, that I didn't want to write books that looked like other people's books, that I wanted to write so that every time you read something of mine, you knew it was mine and that I couldn't be copied and that I wasn't copying anybody else, you know, to do something. And and that came from just reading. Like all my favorite writers did that. If you read Henry Miller, it's Henry Miller. If you read Baudelaire, it's Baudelaire. If you read Rimbaud, it's Rimbaud. If you read any sort of great writer it's theirs it's their voice it's their style it's it's it can't be copied because if you're just copying somebody it's no good you can't be you can't just write in somebody else's style all the writers i like did something that was radically their own jack kerouac or charles bukowski or whoever yeah did you have to become sober to be able to write yeah for sure Like I, I wrote a bunch of nonsense bullshit when I was drinking and getting high, and there's no discipline in that life. For me, I ha a discipline was a big part of it, and confidence. Like getting getting sober gave me confidence to be able to do almost anything in my life. I think, like I because I did that, and it was really hard and unpleasant and lonely. I, I've always felt like I could do whatever I want. I must say, uh, I've been sober for 10 years now, and I read uh, a million little pieces at a really crucial time in my life. And it was the book was super important, or is super important to me. Cool, thank you. I have to thank you for that. Thanks. I mean, it's always it sounds weird. It's always very humbling to hear that. Like, I, I don't ever know how to react to it except. To be like humbled by it, like it makes me happy that that book affects people in some way. Like I think back about it, I don't, I've never read it. I've never read it cover to cover. I don't ever want to read it, but it makes me happy. I don't know how other writers feel about their books, but the like those books live a life that's separate from me. A million little pieces has just been such a crazy roller coaster shit show thrill ride i guess i'm happy that people read the book and it, it makes me happy that that you read it and it, it helped you or affected you or moved you and it's like super humbling it makes me feel small which yeah. is a good thing well actually i think that maybe it was like this that i read it and then like almost by osmosis it made me realize that i had to become clean to do something about my life really i mean good i, I mean <laughs> good i know that the book has been controversial and so forth but you must get this reaction as well i get letters every literally every single day from people which is awesome and humbling other junkies yeah i mean fuck ups i call i call us fuck ups we're a tribe And it, it makes me happy that my book somehow 
was part of our world, I guess. I don't, I don't even know how to explain my relationship with that book. In many ways, it's the defining sort of experience of my life, being a fuck up, writing that book, the whole process of that book, the whole sort of story of that book. And in, and in other ways, it's just something else. But it makes me happy that it's read. You know, it makes me happy that I wrote something that moves people and affects people and hopefully changes people. People come ask me about it sometimes now, and I don't even remember. They'll be like, oh, well, what about this? And I'll be like, I don't even fucking remember writing that. Or there have been like, there have been cards, like greeting cards made out of quotes from the book. Or I, I've gotten probably, I've got literally gotten hundreds of photos of people who have tattoos of quotes from that book. Okay. Or tattoos of the scribbles in the book. That's fantastic. I guess in some ways, like, I disconnect it from myself because I don't want to... There have been a, a couple times in my life where I've had issues with my ego, where I've thought, like, oh, I'm a big shot, or, oh, where my confidence has become arrogance. It's never a good thing. Like, it's even weird to admit that, I guess. But if I sit in my office and I think, oh, you wrote this book, and it's... A, it's then I turn into a dickhead, and so there's some disconnect between me and everything I do. It is what it is. And it makes me super happy that it's in the world. And But I can't, I don't allow myself to like be affected by it. Does that make any sense at all? I guess so, yeah. But on the other hand, it's still your life that you put into a book. Yeah, I mean, it seems so long ago. Yeah? I'm old now. I'm old and beaten up and weary. Are you still sober, I guess? Yeah, I've been sober for 22 years. In October, it'll be 22 years, 21 and a half years. You still don't go to meetings? I don't go to meetings. I, I, I do exactly what I, I did, exactly what I said in that book. You know, I live my life. I believe what I believe. I think meetings are awesome. It's an interesting thing. On my, on my drive to work here every day, I drive past a church. And I come to work every every day between like nine and I leave home eight forty five. I drop one of my kids off at school and then I drive here. And there's a church next to the school and there's a, a, a morning meeting that gets out at nine. So most days when I drive to work, there are all these people outside the meeting, outside the church, you know, standing around drinking coffee, bullshit and whatever. Smoking. Smoking. All, all ex <laughs> fuck ups smoke a lot. A lot of cigarettes. And it's a cool, it's a good thing to drive past that every day. Even though I don't go to meetings and never have, it's just always a good reminder. But yeah, I'm sober for almost 22 years. It's not even that difficult anymore. There have definitely been times in my life when it's been difficult. There are very, very occasional times still when I'm, I'm tempted or feel urges. But I also wouldn't have a life. Um, a lot of sober people say it. But I'd probably be dead. And if I wasn't dead, I'd be a homeless, probably a homeless guy or in jail. When you get urges, is it alcohol or drugs? or? I mean, it would be alcohol and cocaine, and it's just the urge to not feel whatever it is I'm feeling. Yeah, The only urges I feel are on extreme emotional moments, either good or bad, on both ends of the spectrum, like... Something goes great, and you think, oh, man, like, it would be awesome to have a fucking drink and feel even better. Or you feel really awful about something, and you just want to drink so you can, 
not feel anything. I mean, it's the same thing it always was. Well, you know, most people who become alcoholics or drug addicts or fuck ups or whatever we want to call them become that way because we don't want to feel what we feel. Yeah. You have these feelings and, and, and you don't like them and you're not comfortable with them and you don't understand them. You don't want to deal with them until you take something, which makes you not have to feel what you feel. And, and the problem always is, is when that thing you take, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or heroin or whatever, whenever it, when that thing wears off, those feelings return and they're usually stronger. And then they're compounded by your feelings of shame or powerlessness or, or weakness or whatever it is one feels. For me, the process of becoming sober was just learning how to live with what I felt. Like learning to be comfortable with who I was and how I live and what I believe and what I feel, you know, that was a lonely, hard process. Yeah, I think it's a lonely, hard process for everybody, whether you go to meetings or not, whether you go to rehab or not, however you do it, it ultimately it's a, a singular endeavor. I went to meetings for the first year, but I'm not sure why, but I never really got into it and i'm thinking about maybe it's your fault <laughs> but, but but maybe it's also i sort of had had a problem with the first thing that you say that you realized that you're powerless over exactly i'm thinking that since i quit i'm not powerless over it i'm not sure i would feel a little bit like a hypocrite if i went in there with the real junkies and the real alcoholics. On the other hand, if I would take one beer now, that would fuck everything up. I mean, I I always said I was powerless if it if I put it into my system, but I'm not powerless about whether it gets in there or not. Exactly. You know, like I make the decision to put it in. You know, there's a wine store right over there. The street outside my office It's lined with restaurants that serve alcohol. Where do you score some Coke here? You would probably drive to Stanford or Bridgeport. Stanford's about three miles that way, and Bridgeport's about ten miles that way. It's super easy to get fucked up if you want to. It's not fucking hard. Any any former junkie or drug addict or fuck up can drive into pretty much any city in in the world and find drugs. But it's my choice whether I put them into my body or not you know that's not and it's only in my view it's only my choice nobody it's not god who makes that decision for me it's not a higher power who makes that decision for me it's not my membership in an organization or a group that makes that decision for me it's me and i have control over that decision i decide whether i'm going to walk into the liquor store buy a bottle leave the liquor store open the bottle and put the bottle in my mouth i have complete control whether i drive into new york city or take a train in and go score drugs and put them into my body i'm not powerless in the process of making those decisions is that why you have problems with the meetings for yourself then i mean to a large part it, it, it was like i don't believe in a higher power i'm not going to turn my will and my life over to a higher power that i don't believe in Part of it is honestly like I'm sitting here talking to you, but I also don't like talking that much. And I don't really like listening to other people talk that much. Like I'm pretty happy by myself, pretty happy in a room by myself. 
so meetings weren't going to work out for me if I don't want to talk and I don't want to listen, you know? And part of it was I just, I, if I was going to quit, I wanted to quit. Like I didn't want to spend my life or large, you know, portions of my life talking about shit that I had done. I just wanted to put it behind me. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sober you know, a long time now. I don't want to talk about the shit I did when I was 16, 18, 20, 22. That was a long, long fucking time ago. It was a different life and I was a different person. And I don't want to spend my life focusing on something in the past. Like you quit, you move on. You quit, you figure out who you are, how you want to live, what you're going to do, and you move on. That's how it was for me. And I also respect that, like, it's different for everybody. I don't, however anybody wants to do it, it's cool. Do you Google yourself? Never. I haven't Googled myself in 10 years. I shudder to think about what probably fucking shows up. Yeah, I'm thinking about that because I, I, I'm curious if you have a grasp of, about how people feel about you. Probably. I mean, I, th I think people, I, I guess maybe I don't, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> I think people probably are, are on extreme sides of, of opinion. People either really like what I do and, and how I do it and who I am, or they hate what I do and how I do it and who I am. My view of it is I don't think there's much of a middle ground, that there are strong opinions one way or the other, and I, I don't really know what the percentages are. I, don't, I guess I don't, it's not something that concerns me. Like, I don't come to work and, and worry about it. I come to work and, and just want to do cool shit and write books that I think are cool, and, and I, I think I like it that way. I don't want to be, I've always, I've said many, many times over the years, like, If there's ever a period in my career where people can shrug off what I do or they aren't forced to react to it in some way, either extremely positive or extremely negative, that I'll just quit because I won't be effective anymore. I mean, the controversy about the opera thing, etc. I mean, because I'm thinking that you seemed sort of content with that controversy back then but do you still see it like that what do you mean content well it it sort of seemed to have served your purposes i didn't cry over it it doesn't bother me much no it wasn't that fun but there are worse things in life for sure a lot i mean in some ways it was oddly perfect I've said, I've told this story before. When I did Oprah the first time and the book exploded and sold four million copies in three months or five million copies in however many months, crazy sales, I had a lot of trouble with it. A Million Little Pieces was not written to be a self-help book. A Million Little Pieces was not written to be a book that was a guide to sobriety. It was written to be a work of literature, a work of art, as pretentious as that sounds. It was written, if anything, to be sort of a gob of spit in the face of what I saw as a lack of personal responsibility that 
people say, well, these problems aren't my problems. I didn't cause them. It's a disease. It's the disease's fault. I'm not responsible for fixing it. It's, it's God. And, and none of that ever made any sense to me. And it's not how I did it. And, but ultimately what I was trying to do was just write a badass book, write a book that was divisive and controversial and that forced people to choose one side or another to f- that forced people to either love it or hate it sort of in the tradition of the writers that I loved Baudelaire and Rimbaud and Herman Hess or I mean I, I don't know what his I mean I know he's gone through periods of being loved or hated but uh, Knut Homsen Scandinavian yeah, writer yeah. like Hunger was a fucking was a book that meant a ton to me when I was a kid, and I, like I, I read that book, and I was like, "This is a spectacular book about rage, about becoming." And I wanted to write a book in that vein, and I did it, and then it got chosen by Oprah, and it somehow became something else. It became like this feel-good story, and it became a self-help book. And I would walk down a street in America and people would want to hug me and touch me and I was literally getting hundreds some days thousands of letters like can you help my can you help my my brother or my mother or my father or my cousin or my sister or can you help me and I, 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 I whatever help I can offer people is in that book like I'm not a doctor I don't claim to have answers for anyone but myself and that wasn't even the intention of that book and I had a lot of trouble with it. And I, went, I started seeing a shrink. And I would go to the shrink and, and talk about, like, this has become something it's not supposed to be. I, I wrote a book that was supposed to be offensive and controversial and divisive. And it's become this thing that's so far beyond my control and not at all what I expected it to be. Like, I'm supposed to be a bad guy. And then everything blew up again, you know, the investigations and lawsuits and all, you know, I had to go back to Oprah. I got yelled and screamed out on Oprah. I remember leaving Oprah's studio that day and going to the airport to fly back to New York and literally walking through the airport and CNN is on all the airport, you know, televisions really all over the world. But walking through one in America, it's definitely everywhere. And everything on CNN was about me. It was very fucking odd. People pointing at me and taking pictures of me. And I get back to New York and there's a hundred paparazzi standing outside my apartment building. It was just fucking weird. And I went to the shrink a few days later. And uh, I sat down and he was like, how you doing? I was like, I'm all right. It's been a weird couple days. He's like, well, you got what you wanted. How's it feel? And I sort of laughed. And I was like, I don't know yet, man. And in a weird way, that book became what I always hoped it would become, which is an unbelievably controversial, divisive, for some people offensive, and for some people inspiring blend of fact and fiction. That was the fucking intention from before the time I started writing it. And I am okay with it. I don't mind that people hate me and I don't mind that people are offended by what I've done or what I do that it doesn't affect me in any way you don't get spit at on the street never 
maybe once has anyone in the street ever said something negative to me. Okay. Like it's, it's always the opposite. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just like fame. Fame makes people react weird. Or if it's that people won't say to my face what they might say when I'm not standing there. I mean, it's interesting. Some t- I've, had, I've had a couple times in my life where I've confronted some of my most ferocious critics. I'm not going to go into who or where or how, but there have been people who have written brutal things about me on the internet, and I've ended up in the same room as them. But you didn't find them by Googling it yourself? No. I mean, um, somebody will send me something, and I'll read it. You know, When the books come out, I look at the reviews for sure. There are people in my life who will tell me things. One guy was going after me for years, and I ended up in the same room as him, and I just walked over to him, and I was like, you got anything to say to me, man? And he he, he was really fucking nervous. He was like, no, I don't. And I was like, yeah, I didn't think he would. And he's never written anything about me since. Yeah. In some kind of weird way, like I, like I was saying before, I stay disconnected from what happens to my books when they go out into the world. I hope people... I do, and and I, I can say I hope people love them. I hope people love them, and I don't mind if people hate them. And it's never about me. It's not about me as a guy. Like I don't sit here in my office and think like, oh, I need the world to love me because I don't at all. My work is something outside of myself, and I hope people love the books. I hope people that they move people. I always say I just want my books to do what books have done to me. I want my book to do what Tropic of Cancer did to me or what A Season in Hell did to me or what American Psycho did to me or what On the Road did to me or Dharma Bums did to me. Just light me the fuck up. I want them to do to other people what those books did to me. Ideally, I want people to read things I wrote and say what I said about those books, which is I can't believe he did that and I'm happy he did. Like I try to write books that I wish existed in the world, that I wish somebody else had written. I think if I read A Million Little Pieces when I was an 18-year-old, I'd be like, damn, that's fucking badass. I must say uh, about that that I'm impressed with with your teeth. They look really good. They just got replaced a couple weeks ago. Okay. I, I was writing, I I wrote this thing, like, I went to the dentist a few weeks ago, and he was like, dude, you got to get your fucking teeth fixed. They're literally going to break. And I went to a wedding. There's a picture on my Facebook, if you want to go see it. It was literally like two or three weeks ago. And I went to a wedding a few days later, and we were at the rehearsal dinner on the Friday night of the wedding. And I bit into a piece, uh, a chicken finger. I stole it off a kid's plate and I, I bit into a chicken finger and one of my teeth broke in half. And I called the dentist that night. I was like, dude, I was at a wedding. I was at a rehearsal dinner tonight and he cut me off. He's like, yeah, your tooth fucking broke, didn't it? And I was like, yep. He goes, get in here tomorrow morning and we'll fix them. So the, the front two literally got replaced two weeks ago. Yeah, okay. Pictures of me at the dentist on my Facebook page. It looks good. Would you like to recommend anything, something, anything? To your listeners? Yes. Skrillex. Do you know Skrillex? Yeah, yeah. I think Skrillex is badass. I love some love songs from the 80s. I've been listening to a lot of Ronnie James Dio lately. Do you know Dio? Yeah, yeah, of course. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. 
Yeah. After he passed away, I went, because I'd loved those albums in the 80s and early 90s. After he passed away, I went and downloaded them all and been listening to them again. They're fucking badass. Yeah. And when he was with Rainbow, remember that band Rainbow? Yeah, but I'm, I'm too young, I think. Rainbow was good, too. I mean, I didn't really know Rainbow either, but I downloaded it. It was good. It's good. I mean, books. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of the coolest book I've read recently. I mean, I'm reading the Dresden Files right now. They're kind of cool. The two movies I, I liked recently were Swedish movies. Okay. Snobba Cash, you know those yeah. two movies? Yeah, yeah. Joel Kinnaman. Yeah. Joel Kinnaman's cool. He was in uh, The Killing here in America, which I thought was an awesome show. I'm bummed it's not going to get made anymore. So I downloaded those two movies and I liked them. The first one was better than the second one. Who would you like me to interview on Vervet International? He's a tricky dude to track down, but Brett Easton Ellis is a great friend of mine. He's an interesting cat. Probably a good interview. The trick is that you have to set it up. Oh, I have to set it up. Fuck that. I'm not getting involved there. <laughs> um, Skrillex. I'd be, I think it'd be cool to, to listen to him talk. Thank you so much for your time, James. My pleasure. Hello to Sweden and Scandinavia. I will see you this fall. Oh, you will? Yeah. I always come for all the books, and I'm coming for Endgame. And we're organizing it right now. I'm going to hit Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland. Perfect. Maybe I should have said this before the interview, but uh, the sound was a little bit so-so at times. I hope you heard what we said. It's hard working on the road. And I wrote a tweet about this interview the other day on the Varvet Pod account that uh, on a personal level, I think this might have been one of the most important uh, ones to me. Super interesting guy, this James Fry. Okay, time to finish this episode off. Thank you so much for listening. And please email us at pod at varvetpod.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. That's varvetpod. And or check out our Facebook page. That's Varvet International on Facebook. Producer was Christina Jolingbiro. Editor was Lovisa Olson. And I, myself, is Christopher Triumph. Talk to you in a week. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.